0: Everything Went Black Podcast. I'd like to thank everybody who's been listening. Uh, please feel free to subscribe uh, using iTunes, or you can check us out on Stitcher, which is uh, this pretty killer application for your uh, mobile devices, which is how I've been listening to all of my podcasts. Also, if you're interested, I'm on Instagram as Mike Hill 666 very original. Or you can follow me on Twitter at, at MikeHillHQ. I'd like to welcome Peter Faris, author and rock singer. So, uh, Pete, thanks for taking uh, taking the time out this afternoon and uh, chatting with me. Um, I just finished uh, reading, um, you know, your, your most recent book, and uh, you know, "Last Call for the Living." And um, you know, if you're a fan of uh, violent crime novels, I think this is uh, definitely something that would be up your alley. So, uh, so you know, what I, I met you when you you were in a band when you know back back in the day uh, you were first singing for the Farewell Order and then uh, you were for a brief period of time or for actually for a couple of years you were singing doing vocals in uh, cable. So, yeah,
1: I was. Uh, it's a long time ago. The Farewell Order was around. Um, was my band right after college in Connecticut. I was up there going to school, but. That ended in like 2002, 2003, and then I joined Cable, and I played in Cable. Uh, I, I commuted from Atlanta with Cable for about eight years. I re- record, play shows, with them whenever possible, and um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's you got a great memory, man. <laughs> I, can, I can barely remember the farewell for days. But, <laughs>
0: yeah, it's all that clean living, man. You know, clean yeah. clean living and bulletproof <laughs> coffee.
1: You know. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. Speaking of coffee, I brewed a special cup of David Lynch
0: espresso roast just for this podcast. Like, oh, nice. So. <laughs> How is uh, that? It's excellent, actually. I uh, it's sort of um,
1: you know it's 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 my special occasion coffee. Let's put it that way. But it's good stuff.
0: I recommend it. Cool. Yeah, you know I'm a big David Lynch fan, so I'll try to endorse anything that guy's involved with. But uh, so you're originally from Georgia, is that correct? I
1: am, yeah. I uh, was raised in uh, Cobb County, which is um, north of Atlanta, and uh, I've lived here all my life with the exception. I was fortunate enough to have a chance to to go to college first and then go to school out of state, do this sort of four-year thing. And I went to school in Connecticut, um, and uh, that's kind of how I discovered a lot of the music that that I'm into and uh, wound up playing in bands because of it, too, so...
0: So is that how you met Randy and the rest of the cable guys and you know yeah, yeah. The, the Federal Order played a show at a club in New London Connecticut
1: um, called the LNG which I think is still around and uh, that's how I met up met the guys in cable and as uh, you know the Federal Order was a band that we were all trying to sort of make it um, not make it but give it a go be able to put out records tour, and we got close but uh, it just didn't you know it didn't work out so uh, I joined Cable and, and those guys few of them anyway Randy's one of my best friends and you know I still I'm really close with a lot of those guys so you
0: know, Randy was on the podcast uh, a few days ago um, he came down here to uh, check out that Black Flag show with me
1: Yeah, that was a great podcast, by the way. I I probably I wanted to jump in about a dozen times during that conversation, just because it was so good and interesting to me as a as a black flag obsessive, you know, as a fellow black flag obsessive.
0: Yeah, that's um. Originally, I was really against the whole thing, and um, a couple of podcasts ago, I had uh, Eric Lyle who um, wrote an article for Vice about his experiences traveling down to Taylor, Texas and auditioning for Black Flag and getting the player Greg in and you know going through that sort of whole process and that's what sort of got me interested in checking out these reunion dates again however um, after actually experienced the uh, the show I kind of wish I'd stayed home and watched the UFC that night So, uh, so I don't know man are you uh, planning yeah, to check out any of those dates?
1: Yeah, there, there was an Atlanta show announced. God knows the tickets might have sold out already. And I, um, uh, I've i always... It's interesting talking to guys like Randy and, and knowing too, uh, what a huge fan you are. They're, they're a band that you can be consumed by. You can easily obsess over them and sort of immerse yourself in Black Flag. So I, I think a lot of fans like us had very high expectations if when the, the rumors begin sort of resuscitating or they're announcing a, a reunion, when, the, when that was announced, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I think it would be really hard to meet our, our expectations. But ultimately this, I've seen videos on YouTube, your podcast, views online, and it just sounds like a real disappointment. I think I'm going to just stay home and watch live videos from 85 on YouTube. <laughs> and yeah. just leave it at that.
0: You're, <laughs> so. you're probably better off. I mean, I mean the one the one saving grace of the whole thing was definitely um at the very least I got a chance to watch Greg Ginn play guitar and you know, aside from the overall experience, Greg Ginn is a genius musician and, and you can't take that away from him. I mean I know there's a lot of you know, hearsay and a lot of stories about him and how he deals with people and that sort of thing and that's that's irrelevant to his talent. Like I think that you know, he's one of the most distinctive, unique players that I've ever heard, and you can't take any of that away from him. But with that said, yeah. this this whole reunion business, I think, is uh, you know smacks of commerce, you know, and, and I'm yeah, not really I, into I, that.
1: I, you know, you, you, want to, uh, you you've, you've covered a couple podcasts with but I, I probably I, I would like to mention that it's uh, I think if Black Flag, as you guys talk about, if you're going to put that name on something, if you're going to revive that name, as Greg Ginn has. It better be something special. Everything right now—the new album, the live performances, even the lineup—and and to me too, one thing that uh, has bothered me—and I don't—if you're friends with Greg, you on Facebook, you've probably noticed the past few weeks and months, he's sort of manufactured this weird conflict with with guys like Dukowski and Keith Morris, and what the guys in "quote unquote" flag are doing—and that really rubbed me the wrong way. So everything is just kind of not. I don't know, it's it's ultimately not proving to be a very special, magical reunion. It just seems like it's going to fall flat on its face. You know, it's a shame, man, what are you going to do? It's uh, Our heroes sometimes disappoint us, ultimately.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, one of the worst things about it was, like, you know, in general, people seem to be eating up the whole experience, and, you know, there was this very party-style atmosphere um, that sort of permeated the whole show, and I don't know, it was just definitely not what I was looking for out of a black flag reunion you know yeah yeah
1: it's a it's a crime shame man I don't know it's uh, like you man. I've got I've got family man tattooed on my leg for a reason and so uh, this, this it, it's it's strange sometimes when you meet either meet people who've inspired you you know creatively or when you have a, a chance to see you know an artist in person and and it's it's so it's real crushing sometimes when you're disappointed by how it goes down, you know. So it's uh it's it's something you have to deal with. I've had it happen with writers, and you know, I'm sure you've had it with musicians and bands you've crossed paths with, passed with over the years, and bands you admire. and Then you actually are around them, and you're like, Jesus Christ, these people are, are
0: real bummers man. <laughs> you know? Yeah i was uh, I was fortunate to interview Henry Rollins a couple of years ago and, and I, I have to say that Rollins definitely did not disappoint me I mean he was pretty much exactly as I expected he would he would be he was very courteous like really sharp um, you know and the overall experience like he had thoughtful answers you know and um, he was very realistic about his place in music you know what I mean like currently you know he has no plans of being you know producing anything musical anymore and though i i would you know as, as selfishly i would like to see rollins do another record as either himself or as the rollins band or whatever i can relate to the fact that he probably feels like that chapter of his life is closed and it's time to move on to something else and i i admire that you know yeah
1: yeah it's almost his career's almost it seems like it's being written by someone else because it seems to have played out so perfectly and yeah. I, I mean that as a compliment to rollins that you just he, he seems to have always followed his intuition and it makes sense for him to to be an engaging commentator writer or public performer public speaker now and ma- it makes total sense at this point in his life and everything he does is worth checking out whether these people call it good or bad or they like it or they don't it's always interesting and that to me is remarkable i think he's going to go down as one of the most fascinating people in alternative underground music history, you know, if that makes sense. Um, I've always had a a, a ton of admiration for a guy like Henry Rollins. um, I don't know, I'd probably probably whittle and pee my pants if I ever had a chance to meet him in person.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was real real excited about that. I was, like, real intimidated, actually, because, like, you know, you hear stories about how hard he is to deal with, and, you know, um, it wasn't face-to-face. It was actually over the phone, so that made it even worse, so there was no... You know physical <laughs> physical component to connect with and um but I think I pulled it off pretty well and I mean it's it I have the audio version of it uh in one of the earlier one of my first few podcasts is the audio version of that interview um so anyway you uh you went you went to school in Connecticut so what what um what, what were you studying and where do you go um
1: I went to uh Yale University in New Haven Connecticut and uh I was a sociology major um honest i can't uh I, I can't put uh describe why i pursued it it was just a, a topic or subject a, a diploma that was interesting to me or a course of study i guess that um, I, I wasn't really thinking big picture or, you know like grad school and stuff like that at, um, but uh I, i'm certainly grateful uh, a lot of quite a few of my friends never went to college quite a few of them it took them several years they worked full-time my fiance worked two two full-time jobs at one point and was going to school full-time so I feel really fortunate I was able to go to college at all and do a sort of traditional four-year college thing um yeah it's strange at that time in New Haven at that time in Connecticut late 90s early two thousands. Uh, I graduated in 2001 I discovered a whole uh, um all these different genres of
0: music that kind of have
1: come to define me you know if you think about the late 90s, there's so much great stuff going on, especially in, in the Northeast and New England. Hydrahead Records, Relapse, Escape Artist, um, hardcore punk rock, noise rock, sludge, all this awesome stuff was happening around that time. But I discovered a lot of great music when I was in college. It's probably what I'm most thankful about going to Yale is the fact that you know, I, I was—I I, I discovered the first Kiss Goodbye album and, and stuff like that. So.
0: Yeah, that was definitely probably the last really good era in hardcore music in my opinion. Um you know, I feel like nowadays things have sort of and maybe this is just cuz I'm an old man at this point, but uh you know, the late 90s I feel was kind of like the last hurrah for like DIY style like hardcore music, you know. And now I just feel like things are just kind of rehashing the same tired formulas and whatnot. But
1: strange, I, 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 I caught the tail end of that as I was discovering all these bands. It was a real snowball effect while I was going to college in Connecticut. But when you think about the, the labels and bands that were operating underground heavy music back then, it's kind of, it, yeah, it's, it's, it was this weird, pure sort of secret that some people got to enjoy and find out about. And a lot of these bands are getting back together now, or still together, putting out records. Heavy music seems to be much more commonplace, acceptable, and ha- has a lot more outlets. And It's it's strange to me. You know, I remember I look back fondly on 98, 99, and uh, those were, I guess, called my formative years. But uh, that time in Connecticut, man, I discovered a whole realm of music. And it, like I said, it came to kind of define me um, because I'm, I've been a f- fanatic for music ever since, and that hasn't stopped since. Just because I'm, I'm playing a band anymore, um, I spend way too much money on records, way too much money on shows and merch. Still, to this day,
0: so. Is that when you uh, you started writing? Was in you know in college or after college?
1: Yeah, it was after college, actually. Yeah, I uh, it, it seemed to be a natural extension. If I got serious about writing uh, fiction probably uh, around the time I joined Cable uh, in 2003. But and it was an extension of writing lyrics, and uh, I just I started to read different writers and uh, started to think about what it would take to get published. And I started writing short fiction, and then attempts at novels. All of that stuff was just terrible. It's, it's dreadful. You, if you read it, you'd have to say I had no talent. But uh, that's when it started for sure. Um, my my father's a writer too, so I've been around. A novelist my whole life, and uh, I, I suppose that I was 24, 25 years old, and I, I realized I wanted to try and write publishable fiction, so, uh, yeah, again, it, it was an extension of writing lyrics for, you know, songs or playing in a band, and uh, continued from there, so.
0: Some of that early writing, was it more uh, personal stuff, or stuff, you know, sort of uh, based around your life, or, you know, so what... What was the basic subject? Uh, it,
1: it wasn't emo or anything. <laughs> the, uh, uh, it was, I guess the, the nice thing about when you're writing lyrics as a vocalist in a band, like my first band, The Farewell Order, and even a band like Cable, which when I joined them was going towards a more uh, 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 sort of rock-type uh, format, uh, writing lyrics for... Crazy tech grind, like you know, tech metal band. You have a lot of freedom and liberties. So, um, you know, I looked at uh, hell, even the stuff you were doing, in Anodyne or Anodyne. Uh, I forget. I, I don't. I never knew how to pronounce that, by the way. So, forgive me. if no, I That's right. It. That's the right way. Yeah. Uh, um, Coalesce, Botch, a lot of those bands, Kissing Goodbye, Dead Guy. Uh, I was looking, I was writing lyrics, sort of in that vein, uh, influenced by by. Uh, uh, guys like Tim Singer and, and, and Sean Ingram and folks like that. So yeah, the lyrics kind of took on this strange abstract form. I wasn't writing verses and, and choruses and whatnot. And that's the freedom you had if you were writing music. Like, again, it's really discordant, crazy, tech teched out type hardcore metal. And uh, it, it kind of when I got serious about writing and started writing short fiction, um, I realized some of those old lyrics I was penning kind of it, it, it sort of was a stepping stone in a way. I was writing—I wasn't writing personal stuff or emotional stuff. It was sort of detached and, and, and objective, and sort of telling stories in, in, in the course of a few lines. So, yeah, it all started there. Uh, I think back, and um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I can thank like Hydrahead Records and Second Nature <laughs> and Relapse back in the day for getting me started as a fiction writer to
0: some extent. So now. Uh your your novel, Last Call for the Living, is that is that the that's is that your first complete novel, or is that only, the, or is that the first novel that's been published?
1: Yeah, that's the first published novel. I've got um, uh, yeah, I've, I've got two novels on my hard drive right now that I believe are publishable, uh, and I'm working on uh, a, a third. Uh, actually, no, I've got, I've got yeah, I've got four novels. One of them, I, I don't think if it was ever published, I would I would publish it under my name. Um, it's that's it's sort of a splatterpunk horror novel um, that, that I, I'm fond of, and I think it's publishable, but it, it wouldn't make sense to try and publish it as Peter Ferris, I guess. So. Um, yeah, it's it, it took me eight years to get published too, so it gives you an idea of how slow the wheels turn in New York publishing. But yeah, Last Call for the Living is the first book to be published. And...
0: Now, how long ago did you write that? Like you uh, know, I mean... and, yeah first draft 2006 uh i I had an agent uh
1: my the first novel i thought was going to be published uh uh and i still hope will one of these days is is set in the world of nascar it's sort of like a american american psycho meets north dallas 40 meets dale Hart jr it's 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 an out there type book and that but it was good enough strong enough to get me an agent um but was rejected all over town. And last call for the living, I, I immediately started writing it. Yeah, first draft finished in 2006. Was submitted to a couple of publishers. 2007, 2008. Next thing I know, 2009 comes around, and my uh, current publisher uh, made it. My editor there made an offer on it, and then it was published in what 2011, I guess. The hardcover came out 2012, actually. So yeah, it's it's. It, Publishing world moves at a glacier to pace. <laughs> and, uh, it's it's frustrating. And it really is, but that's sort of uh, part of the gig. If you if you want to if you want to play in that big sandbox and you know publish at that level, it's it's slow. The wheels turn awfully slow. So.
0: Now, um, you know, being me being mostly familiar with what it's like dealing with a, a record label, you know, they sign you for you know one record with like options for for. for you know, future albums is that similar to the publishing world like do they you know sign you for this book and do they have options for future books like how does that work exactly
1: yeah it's, it's close and it really depends on the writer the book the genre and the publisher too um, you see it's fairly common although it's very rarely do you see publishers developing writers anymore where they're gonna sign a, a writer for let's say three books and sort of try and develop and foster their career Now it's really kind of a, you're you're faced with the one-and-done proposition. Um, Publishers will offer a a one-book deal with an option, or a two-book deal but with the option to drop you if your first book doesn't sell enough copies. And that's, uh, it's sort of a stark reality writers have to face um, in the publishing world. uh, Depending on maybe what what kind of, what world you're operating in in in, in music, you know, Certainly, I guess, and signing to a major label, it's the same sort of reality they have to accept. But, you know, in my case, it was a one-book deal and a one-book option. But after publishing with my current publisher, uh, I guess without getting into boring details or any melodrama, in the best interest of my next book, I decided to uh, sign with a new literary agent and try and find a better home for it. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's,
0: that's how it goes, man. It's, it's, it's a tough racket. <laughs> it sounds like it. Um, like in other media like now that we, you know, we're in this sort of digital immediate, you know, 21st century dystopian world of, uh, di- you know, the internet and digital media and whatnot. And, you know, in the music world and with film, um, you know, things like blogging and, you know, that sort of world seems to be helping bands. Um, like, do you feel like blogging and, and doing this sort of um, interaction with your with your fan base, does that seem to help in the publishing world? Does it help you build, build, like, a fan base and maybe get, you know, more interest in, like, you know, publishing books and things like that?
1: Yeah, it, it can. I mean, some writers are really, uh, uh, they're, they're wizards when it comes to social media, to blogging. I think I kind of was a little late to... To, to, the, to the blog thing um, when I signed my book and I, I sort of hopped online and realized that every writer and their grandma were, were, I mean, I had a blog. Um, and I sort of made some attempts, you know, to do some things that I thought were interesting. But, you know, I, I don't know if, it, uh, if it's helped my career or hurt it at all. Like I said, there are writers out there who are real masters at it. I just don't have, it seems as I'm, as I'm getting older and, you uh, uh, doing things like buying a house and focusing on my next book. Been, I'm sort of suffering from fatigue when it comes to trying to blog, and tweet, and post on Facebook. And also, too, uh, you, you look at some writers, their bands like this, their filmmakers like this. You know, some of them are pretty shameless, some of them are oppressive with their promo. And I think. It, it, and that hampers. It, it certainly is a turnoff to me to uh, being interested in checking out what someone's doing um, if, if they're just really obnoxious about it. So, uh, yeah, uh, I, I don't know. Sometimes, like if you have to, you really, you have to put a gun in my head if you don't want to tweet anything. <laughs> and, and if I'm talking about my own book, uh, I have. Uh, I, I feel a little weird, you know, talking about it. Uh, is, I'm just not very good at promotion, I guess. So uh, I, I, I don't know. Um, a lot of the writers I admire seem to have the luxury of not having to worry about this sort of shit. You know, they can publish their books, and I guess they have enough for readership that it's either someone does it for them, or you know, they just have that certain fa- factor, I guess, so they don't have to. Uh, they don't have to, to pander. By uh, so my 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 buddy David Scanlon is a really talented writer. He calls it panhandling on the information superhighway.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of a yeah, at it. You know. All right, so uh, you know, after finishing uh, Last Call for the Living, it's sort of what comes to mind is uh, the sort of Jim Thompson, like Cormac McCarthy, you know, James Elroy sort of inspired, you know, very brutal, very dark crime novel and uh, some of the elements in there I mean are, are these real places or are they fictional like some of the places like you know in the in the setting of the book are they like is jubilation yeah. County like a real place down in down south in Georgia
1: it's, it, it's not although it certainly sounds like it could be I think Georgia has is uh, uh, is one of the, is at least in the top three I think has uh, almost as a uh, has more counties than any other state in the country or close to it. So, uh, some of them is, the names are, are somewhat absurd, but that's a, a fictional sort of playground for me. I do allude to real places like the, like the city of Atlanta, for example, like, um, other details where if you were from Georgia, you know, I would, what I would be talking about geographic places, for example, but, um, that's sort of creative license, I guess, for my part. Um, and, uh, uh, so, yeah, for the most part, it's all make-believe. It's all, it's all sort of made-up Georgia. But I'm hoping, hoping convincing enough that even if you were from the state, you would have trouble discerning you know, starting fact from fiction.
0: So, I mean, uh, for, for listeners here who haven't read the book, can you just, you know, without giving away too many spoilers, just sort of uh, summarize the basic plot line and some of the, you know, just some of the key elements just so people can get a flavor for what the book is about? Oh yeah, um, the, the, the book revolves around a bank robbery. Uh, a, a, a teller is taken hostage,
1: um, and the robber has ties to a, uh, a notorious prison gang, the Aryan Brotherhood. Um, he uh, he takes the teller hostage and flees to a safe house in the North Georgia mountains. And uh, uh, from there, I guess, sort of, you know, mayhem ensues. Uh, he he he, he jumped the score on, on some uh, some of his. Uh, uh, fellow members in the A.B., and you also have law enforcement hot on his trail, and uh, that's that's sort of the gist of it. The, the, I, I guess one of the principal or dynamics in the book is the relationship that occurs as, as the, the, the robber and the spank teller is his hostage are holed up. Um, it's, it's the focal point of the book for sure. Although I try and mix in all the sort of stuff that makes crime fiction fun, like a bag of money and shootouts and sex and, and death and all that good stuff, too,
0: it seems to be pretty, uh, you know, pretty heavily uh, researched. I mean, some of the, some of the you know police procedure, weapons, uh, you know, just some of the criminal uh, procedures. Like it seems, I mean, I, I'm not a criminal nor a cop, or I don't know much about firearms, but it seems very. Very much, uh, you know, deeply, uh, you know, research. So, how much actual research do you do, or do you just know about all these things?
1: <laughs> well, I guess I do. Uh, a, a buddy of mine, um, a, a writer named Jed Ayers, and I refer to him as a "authorial enthusiasms," quote unquote. And I think if you meet a lot of fiction writers, especially mystery or crime writers, you'll find out they have a lot of uh, interesting hobbies and interests. Uh, I'm glad that it, it comes across as as well researched. It means, I guess, I sold the lie uh, for the <laughs> most part. And uh, the the bank robbery aspect of it does come from a personal experience. You know, after I graduated college, um, I I stuck around and started that that grindcore band, the farewell Order. And uh, my I needed a day job. I got a job as a bank teller in a First Union Bank in New Haven, Connecticut. And I was at at my branch two weeks or so when we were robbed. So I got to experience a bank robbery firsthand. You know, uh, uh, FBI, New Haven robbery, homicide showing up. I, I gave a statement to a detective. I got to, to uh, rode in the back of an unmarked car and ID'd the guy. And they pulled him out of a nearby bar. Uh, he'd stuff the money in his underwear, no less. That's it. it was a formidable sort of uh, moment and, uh, and a memory that, that obviously stuck with me. And I, I knew when I sat down and started that book, uh, I, I don't, I haven't to this day plotted or outlined ever. Really, sort of. Yeah, I just sort of get a, a scene in my head. It's almost like a, something you'd see in a movie. Um, you just don't know what who, what the names of the characters are. You don't know where they are. You just have this sort of image or impression, and you gotta you you want to you want to get there somehow. And I, I, the only thing I knew in the last call for the living was I wanted it to be about a bank robbery. So in that that aspect of the research, yeah, I, I sort of got to experience a robbery firsthand. And then the other things in the book really just are things that have fascinated me since uh, since I was in college, too. Uh, uh, prison gangs, especially West Coast prison culture, the Aryan Brotherhood, Mexican Mafia, Nestor Familia, now MS-13, and and certainly all the franchises across the country, state and uh, penitentiaries and at federal prison level. Um, and then firearms, too, I mean, I I, I, did, I am cert, sort of proud, I guess, of, I don't. I don't think anyone listening, uh, tuning in, might be giving anything away. The, the shootout in the snake handling church. Uh, I don't think that had been done before, and that really is, I guess, uh, uh, comes from my. Let's just say I do value the Second Amendment, and I love Michael Mann and Sam Peckinpah films, and sort of me getting a chance to uh, to to show off a little bit there. I suppose to have a really righteous sort of shootout in the book. Um, so. Yeah, it's a mix of things—real life things, stuff I'm just interested in—and and and, uh, and and then me just hope trying to sell, sell, like I said, sell that line in the reader, make them think
0: I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, it's funny that you mentioned Sam Peckinpah because um, one of the things, you know, like like these are bad people, you know what I mean? For the most part, you know, like the the main character, well, one of the main characters, you know, he's a a white power prison gang guy who ran out basically on his family or, you know, or whatever, sort of questionable background. However, there are likable things about him, you know, his utility, the way he handles situations. And there's like this weird honor system that seems to exist between him and some of the other gang members. And that, you know, sort of encapsulates some of the, the ideas that you see in Sam Peckinpah films where, you know, especially like the film which i don't know if you've seen that uh, bring me the head of uh, alfredo garcia where oh, um, you know no one's good in that movie but you sort of sympathize yeah. with the characters a little bit like everyone's evil everyone has like a really dark side yet they're, they're yeah. and i feel like this this book really has like there's only really one like i would say quote unquote innocent in the in the in the in the story and you know he's the whole, Course of all the things that happen, obviously change him. But, but you know, for the most part, everyone everyone's guilty in some way.
1: Yeah,
0: of yeah. something. Well, it's it's stupid <laughs> observation. Uh, I'm glad uh, uh, you picked up on that because yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated
1: by complicated outlaws and, and you see them a lot in Sam Posh films. The Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and the Wild Bunch certainly, and Ride the High Country too. But one of the early westerns being. Uh, really good examples to me. Uh, you look at a, a movie like Michael Mann's Heat and the character of Neil McCauley, played by Robert De Niro. Um, those were certainly, I think, in the back of my mind, or maybe sort of a subversive influence when I was writing the, the character of Hicklin, who's the member of the Area uh, Brotherhood, the bank robber in my novel. Um, he, uh, it, I, trust me, I while writing him too, I, it's uh, it, it was tough. Um, you know, writing about a really despicable person. I mean, when you look at guys in in any prison gang in in this country, and especially the area of Brotherhood, they harbor some reprehensible beliefs, you know. uh, But there are some things that I find sort of fascinating, the the codes they live by, the the way they go about their business. And um, I I was attempting to write a character that maybe the reader would uh, maybe have trouble... um, not sympathizing with, going against everything they know to be right. I, I can't like this guy, for example, but I, I want to. Like you, were, I, I wanted people to root for a bad guy, and I have to admit, when I, I've heard from readers across the country, and I've seen it mentioned in reviews, and then you telling that to me too, I have to admit it gives me a little bit of a, a sick satisfaction, it's like mission accomplished, um, just to make things a little bit um, uh, ambiguous and, and complicated. And, and I, I love fiction and film too. That does that. I don't like I don't like little bows and neat cookie cutter box presentations of the characters. I like the characters that are that are complex and and um, that maybe linger in your mind a little bit after you've been exposed to. them, Whether it's a book or a movie, for example. So.
0: Yeah, definitely succeeds in that in that um, area of the novel for sure. Um, have you? Um, is there an audiobook version of this? Uh, not yet, no. I'm I'm, I'm hoping that um, you know the, the the hardcover was published in uh, May uh, last year, and then the ma- the mass market
1: paperback version was just published. And I'm hoping uh, you know uh, uh, well, I'll have an opportunity for an audio book and, and perhaps too to sell it in some overseas markets. But I, I certainly would love an audio book. I can think of
0: about a dozen actors I'd love to read it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um uh, I briefly worked did Some work for uh, audible.com on the audio side, just like you know, editing and whatnot. And uh, yeah, it, that's a you know, on the technical side, it's a pretty brutal <laughs> like experience, man, doing that kind of stuff. But um, I can't
1: imagine, I don't, I was gonna say, I don't uh, I, don't, I don't listen to a lot of audio books hardly at all, but every you now and then, uh, you'll hear an actor and a writer syncing up, and there's just such a great synergy when it happens. And so the one example I'm thinking of is the uh, a wonderful, you know, obviously very famous best-selling mystery writer named James Lee Burke and an actor, a character actor named Will Patton has read a number of, has done the audiobook or performed uh, the audio books I guess uh, uh, for his last few novels, and it's just like his voice and James Lee Burke's his prose were just—they were meant to be together. So I, I would love to hear an audio book with a couple actors I have in mind. You know, It would be fascinating to say the least
0: who would you uh what what actors do you have in mind like you know specifically to play some of these characters oh
1: man there's there's a couple billy bob thornton
0: <laughs> that, the, I, would be one of them. I was thinking the same thing man billy bob thornton would be perfect for at least for one um, any of the characters
1: yeah i thought it would be great josh brolin would be is another actor that i uh, i would love to hear his voice superimposed over uh, over the stuff i wrote um yeah, those two have always been at the top of my wish list, and, and, and so to speak. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. And then some of the female characters in the, in the book too. One of the law enforcement uh, characters, Sally Cruz is her name, and she's a member of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the GBI. I, I freely admit some writers, when they when they write a book, they ask this question a lot: Were you thinking of an actress or an actor in mind? And, and a lot of times, no, but I freely admit, while writing Last Call for the Living, this female GBI agent, I was thinking of Holly Hunter, and I also hear her voice uh, when the character Sally Cruz is speaking in the book, and maybe that has to do with I've had a crush on her since I was a kid. Yes. So.
0: Where did the title come from?
1: Um, good question, and I uh, apparently ripped off Coalesce without even knowing it. Uh, uh, that title I thought had popped into my, my head uh, back in 05 or oh uh, I wrote I, I wrote a book a novel length script called Last Call for the Living. It was my first attempt at a novel, and that was that was actually you know, two thousand and four. I remember that distinctly. Um, it was terrible. It has nothing to do with the book that you read, and that's available in stores. The book I sold first, um, but the title was there and. I, I, at the time, it just sort of occurred to me; it had a nice ring to it, and I really liked it. I discovered, I don't know, a few years ago. I guess Coalesce had released like a really uh, limited live seven-inch or something by that name, and maybe that's where I got it from. I honestly can't remember for the life of me uh, what came first. If you know, maybe that's where I heard it, or, or what. And being a fan of the band, it seems likely. But uh, thankfully, there's no copyright on titles. <laughs> <So, laughs> Actually, I think you have had that experience with Path of Totality, right? Was, yeah. Wasn't your, the,
0: the Tombs' last album a time that was used by another band that maybe we just won't even mention? No, man. The <laughs> the, the excellent band Corn. They, uh, you know, they they uh, came up with, uh, you know, the, name, the same name as our last album. And, um, yeah, that was a real drag because, you know, not because, I mean, you know, not like I'm in some competition with Corn or whatever, but it's like, I feel like I put a lot of thought in like the title the title really connected with a lot of the lyrics and the themes on the album and um, yeah. you know I imagine I imagine I don't I don't I mean I might be wrong but uh, I don't think I am wrong by saying this but I feel like maybe Corn are not the deepest of thinkers um, you know especially since uh, you know they have a song called Adidas you know all day long I dream about <laughs> sex or whatever which is like you know great if you're 14 you know and don't know any better about better type of music, but that um I just feel like that just came to them like some guy like in their in their company or some some you know one of their people might have like lifted that name from somewhere, and it just oh yeah, this sounds cool, so let's put make make our you know name our record that, and uh another yeah, slap in the, the face Yelp, was Yelp wrote, it sounds rad. <laughs> yeah yeah, man whatever, man, it sounds cool, Let's let's yeah. And the other thing that was kind of a slap in the face was how, um, I mean, we got, you know, Decibel showed us love and gave us, like, Album of the Year. And then Revolver, like that, like, complete piece of shit, like, rag that comes out, you know, rushed their, you know, Album of the Year and named the Corn record their Album of the Year, you know. And, and it bums me out that this shit means anything to me because... It shouldn't, you know, and there's like way more important things in my life that I should be focusing on. Um, and yeah, but you know, it's still, it's just like, I'm like, come on, guys, you know, like really, you know, just you know, any kind of awareness, you know, would would have been, you know, appreciated somewhere. But whatever. It's man. funny too, because
1: you guys, uh, toons and corn. It seems like to me, if it was maybe let's say 2000 or even 2000. I mean, Four or five. You guys are operating, or uh, at least in my mind, are to this day operating in just completely different universes musically. Um, uh, it's playing in completely different sandboxes, but the, it seems like over the past decade, with uh, uh, it's, it seems to me anyway, more metal magazines, more labels, more tours, more metal and heavy music and music that used to be. At least to me, "quote unquote" sort of underground and independent now is more receptive and, and it has. And it's stupid, you know? so like, now there could be confusion, you know. You could be reading the same magazine, and they could be reviewing a corn record and a tunes record, you know, and that's bizarre to me. You know, so I feel your pain, man. I wouldn't blame you in the least.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, at this point, it doesn't really matter. I mean, we're, we're well, well into the writing. Like, almost a good portion of the writing for our new album is done. And we just recorded a demo of everything just for, you know, songwriting purposes. And, you know, we're probably going to be recording, like, in the fall. So, I'm, I'm already, I mean, I have been way past. Like, when that album came out, I was already way past what we were doing on that record. You know, already thinking yeah. about the next thing, you know, so. But, yeah, corn man. I mean, oh,
1: sorry.
0: Go I, ahead. I mean, you know, not for nothing. I mean, corn you know, they've been around for a long time. They've been doing what they do, and they've perfected that style of music that they've been doing. And, um, you know, I mean, whatever. I mean, everyone's different. You know, everyone's got, you know, their little statement they want to make, and that's cool with me, you know. But um, the really funny thing is, like, we were having this discussion the other day about uh, how Helmet and Godflesh have, you know, we're, were the... Basically, the forefathers of new metal, you know, two bands I thought were great. You know, I mean, I still, I mean, well, you know, Godflesh is active again, but it's just funny how like, I I have in the someone has brought to my attention that they've read interviews with the guys in Corns th- and Corn, how they're citing specifically Godflesh as a major influence on them. Yeah, that's that's hysterical. I guess I would throw, I would argue, Faith No More
1: might be another band to put in that lump that influenced, unfortunately, a wave of just I think uh, atrocious bands and music. Yeah. But uh, it's funny they're name dropping Godflesh all of a sudden. Though, it's, it's sort of dreadlocked makers feel Former addicts, I, I guess, or maybe they're going for credibility or something. I don't know. I mean, hell, I, I remember being 17 and having that first porn record and thinking it was amazing. Um, but, you know, we all make mistakes in life, so what are you going to do?
0: <laughs> but, I mean, the thing is, though, you can't really sweat someone for being into them when they're younger because, I mean, look at, you know, it might, it, it, look what it gatewayed you into, though. You know, I mean, you, you have that, Oops. you like that first record, but then it opened the door to other things for you.
1: Yeah, and, and you've probably seen it certainly firsthand, um, and some of our mutual friends the, the, in the scene, quote unquote, and the elitism you come across. And I, I don't know, I just you get to a certain age though where you just don't even care about these things anymore. And I freely admit, I mean, the, some of the bands I listened to in high school, yeah, maybe it's a little bit embarrassing, but man, you don't come out of the womb with a Napalm Death t-shirt on, you know? Like you, you do, it's a, it's sort of not to sound sort of. Uh, uh, hardy, but, you know, it's a process of discovery, you know, you sort of snowball, a, a snowball effect happens when you're discovering new writers, filmmakers, bands, and, you know, I don't know, nobody is that cool. No, <laughs> totally. Really
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I don't deny anything I used to listen to, man. I mean, even, I, I still celebrate stuff that people think sucks, you know what I mean? It's like, I love the flock, I love Flock of Seagulls, man. A fucking crank that shit right after I get off the line with you. I'll fucking crank the shit out of those albums. I don't give a shit. And, uh, like, that's not cool. Like, nobody thinks Black of Seagulls is cool in, like, 2013. You know? I've got, uh, you know, I listen to the Outlaws, you know? (laughs) I listen to, like, uh, you know, fucking Foreigner, you know? Double Vision, Electric Light Orchestra, I listen to all that shit, man. I don't care. If it's good, I listen to it. it. And you're you're not being ironic about it either. Hell no. And it's funny, like, I'll probably date myself, I just, I'm 34, but, you know, when I was in high
1: school, I mean, I I thought that, at 16 years old, I thought 311, Cypress Hill, Wu-Tang Clan, and Raging Against the Machine were, like, the greatest bands to walk the earth, and it's funny, I was, uh, recently bought my first home with my fiancé and moved, and in that pack, and and in the move, I just, I sort of unearthed all these old CDs and an old case logic, it's like, remember those, and, uh, you know, it was like the second Rage Against the Machine album the first Wu-Tang album the first Cypress Hill record even the first House of Pain record and for me it is the nostalgia factor I, I busted out all those CDs and I was riding around in my truck and I, I didn't feel a hint of shame and it was kind of you know I guess it's like when our our, our dad's generation feeling nostalgic for the oldies and yeah. I guess like fucking insane in the membrane it's going to be an
0: oldie to me <laughs> when I'm that age dude I, I'll, I'll rep Cypress Hill I mean you know they weren't yeah, I'll, I'll I'll give them respect where respect is due because they you know they were sort of innovators really, and uh, I mean I I actually you know I have I have some of those albums. However, some of the people at the time I'm not really fond of. You know what I mean? You know there was that groovy like dreadlocky like you know guy with the knit hat and you know <laughs> you know like that kind of dude you know with like the crazy colors and the Dr. Seuss hat and that kind of thing. That was like Back in the 90s, you know, when I was like a young savage living up in Boston, that was like a lot of people like that, you know, hanging out on Newberry Street and whatever. And um,
1: the windbreak baggy cargo pants too, yeah. Yeah, they weren't
0: my favorite people. But, you know, (laughs) the music, you know, whatever, man, it's cool. And I'm sure those people are are cool. I'm sure they had, you know, interesting things that they were into and they were like, you know, this is like important music to me and whatever. You know, at this stage of the game, man, I can't, I can't fault anyone for being into anything because I I was there too, man. Like, I was into stuff that most people think is lame, you know. I still like shit that people, you know, think is lame. And, you know, I like it. What are you going to do, you know? I mean, before Dio was cool, you know, I remember, like, you know, like maybe 10 years ago, no one, you know, if you were into, like, Dio, like, that wasn't cool at all. Like, you – Yeah. Really, were were not that cool. If you like metal, even if you were like Iron Maiden, like if you were into like Paul Diano as like the singer for Iron Maiden, you thought Killers was their best album. People f- looked down on you because you didn't like Bruce Dickinson or whatever. You know, yeah. just, you just yeah, like well, what you like. That, no, dude,
1: the the trip that have occurred to me. It's I I remember too a distinct point like in two thousand four two thousand five where all the all the, the uh, without naming names just observing. From my little obscure Playing in in cable and stuff It seemed like All the hardcore kids Who were wearing You know With their crew cuts And they were wearing Their bands with no socks And their You know Their neck tattoos All of a sudden They grew their hair out And were listening to High on Fire And wearing denim jackets And stuff And I just, or, or the profligation of Mastodon t-shirts, and it was just funny, you see these trends kind of sweep through metal, and that, I, I look back now, and I sort of laugh about it, but I guess when you're in the middle of it, it's, sometimes you take shit like that too seriously, but, yeah, you know, it's, uh,
0: I mean, there's it's, it's funny to see. <laughs> there's definitely a lot of sickening stuff going on right now, though, as far as, uh, you know, okay. music and bands and pretending and things like that go, you know? You still there, Pete? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Me. Yeah, I thought I lost you for a second. We're, uh, just for everyone's uh, benefit here, we're, we're utilizing modern technology to, to conduct this podcast. I got Pete on Skype, so in case anyone um, doubted that we were not sitting face-to-face from each other, you're correct. <laughs> a double negative there. Yeah, it's
1: funny, too, man. I was thinking about... Uh, uh, having only used Skype sporadically, but all I could think of is my old man took me to go see the second Alien movie, Aliens, the James Cameron picture, yep. when I was a little kid. And uh, <coughs> there's sc- the scene in that movie where Paul Reiser's character, Burke, Mer- Mer- kind of, uh, gets a phone call in the middle of the night from from Ripley, and she's, she's calling to tell him that she's in on the mission. And, and in the movie, they have these... These video phones, yeah. And I remember, even as a kid, I was just like, "No fucking way, man! There's that's never gonna happen." And and lo and behold, it's it's uh it, you, we could have done this on our on our cell phones if we wanted to. It's just a trip, man. It's crazy to think about.
0: Yeah. Not, not only do we have Skype, we also have FaceTime. If we're you know going to utilize uh, you know Macintosh technology, you know we yeah. have options.
1: I I hope my next book is a bestseller so I can literally just try and go off the grid as best as I can. Cause to circle back around to the, the topic of social media, uh, blogging, even podcasting too, which I think is fascinating. And certainly you do have to sift through some stuff, but there's some great, great podcasts out there. Certainly yours, yours, of course, included. Uh, Thank you. But man, the, the fatigue that settles in, um, and I don't know if it's the same promoting a band because stuff like Facebook and Twitter it, it is great for bands. I mean, I certainly discovered a wealth of music um, online. That's and that's not, not the stuff I've downloaded illegally, too. Just discovered a lot of, of new bands because metal magazines are online and bands are online, and it's just easier to find it. Uh, but from a from my perspective, it's just the shameless, constant, oppressive self-promo to me it's just such a turn off and yeah i I hope my next book sells enough copies and i I earn enough of a readership where i can just completely drop off the face of the earth man i got uh, it seems like such an overindulgence in this this day and age and i wonder if there's ever going to be some fallout or some some blowback on it you know the anti-facebook movement maybe that exists i don't know but um I just get depressed now when I go online. <laughs> I don't yeah. Know,
0: you. Yeah. I mean, I try to like keep things. I try not to be too, uh, okay. you know, tied into that stuff. But though, though, I am. I mean, I feel like I have to be in certain respects tied into the stuff that goes online. But I also make sure that I balance it out with like real world experiences too. You know. Yeah. It's
1: it's strange. I, I just seem to notice more and more. Um, and maybe this is just perspective to my my news feed on Facebook or something, or my Twitter feed, but it just, it, it seems like people, younger people maybe, like, if it doesn't happen online, if it's not documented on Facebook or Instagram, then it didn't happen, and it seems like people are going about their daily lives like this, um, and it's, it's kind of unhealthy to me, and so, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know, but if you're ambitious and you play in a band and you want people to check out your music, uh, you're a writer, and you want people to check out what you're what you're writing—your fiction or nonfiction, whatever. You, you kind of have to do it, you know. We, we, we can't afford to be uh, uh, very few artists. I think enjoy the luxury of of not having to give a shit about the uh, you know promoting themselves online. You know, uh, it's uh, I, I wish I could do
0: that. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a yin yang sort of you know, situation with the the internet and social media when it comes to being creative. But unfortunately, I feel like at least partially it's here to stay and it's playing like a major component in the way things are done these days, you know. I mean, honestly, it's kind of interesting that, I mean, I, I'm a huge podcast listener and like maybe 10 years ago, that sort of content would not be available for free. That would be something that would you would find like on a radio station with advertised support or... You know advertising support or or on uh satellite radio or even like a you know a network t v show or something like that so it is kind of neat that there are free avenues out there for people to express themselves and nowadays I guess the revenue model has to do with you know sponsorships by various corporations and you know companies and whatnot so i mean that that's 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 to me that's interesting you know even though the "quote-unquote" social media aspect of things is it can, can be a little sickening. Yeah,
1: I think that anything too it just uh, in this day and age, you, you have to search a little harder. You, your filter has to be a little bit more intense. You have to sift through more crap to get to the good stuff. I mean, I think I know we're probably both admirers of a guy like Joe Rogan too, and his yeah. his sort of podcast yeah. or show to me is, is 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 I think the ideal or the model because he if you're an interesting person that has a platform and uh, he has this sort of unlimited sort of range to, to have all sorts of fascinating people on his show and talk about a wide range of subjects, I, as far as I know, completely uncensored too, which is to me one of the, the most uh, interesting things about it because the other, other traditional ways that you go about doing that sort of thing, you, you have limits, you know, and, uh, to me, that's exciting to be able to do it. Uh, I'm still hoping I can get a guy like Randy Larson and I to do uh, a, 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 a drunken post-range NASCAR show or so, a podcast <laughs> or something like that. Or, or get a guy like Jeff Kass. I know we're both big NFL fans and do like a post, post-game post show. Um, that's the kind of type of podcast I could see myself doing, yeah. for sure.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Rogan's podcast, I learned about so many cool things. Though. I mean, I, you know, they, they had um, a writer on there. Actually, this is interesting. Uh, Scott Scott Sigler is um, a writer who writes, uh, I'm, I'm going to say, 100% science fiction. And, uh, you know, he had a hard time getting published, but then he started doing, like, audiobook versions of his work in a blog, and then he got, you know, all this you know, a big, you know, listenership Based on that And that is what propelled him into having Like a publishing, you know, published book And um, through him, I, I actually picked up Two of the novels and read, you know, read them They they're interesting, they were good I enjoyed them, I'm probably going to read Some of his other material You know, and then also just like all of his help And, you know, fitness sort of stuff too Like, you know, It Labs And, you know, the Bulletproof Coffee You know, Bulletproof Exec You know, Dave Asprey That whole kick, you know, is... I got into that just from listening to the Joe Rogan podcast, you know. So. Yeah,
1: he's had a, 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 an outdoor rider who I'm a huge admirer of, a hunter named Stephen Ranella. He's yeah. had Ranella on um, for some great podcasts. And to me, that's fascinating, because Rogan was on Renella's show, Media And uh, uh, it goes to show what a kind of dynamic, free thinking, interesting guy uh, Rogan is. And the possibilities for a show like that or a podcast, I mean, it's that's a really diverse sort of. Uh, group of, of guests that he's had on, and just the few we've mentioned, so um, yeah, that's cool, I'd certainly would love to, to be able to do more more podcasts, I think, for writers it's like a, um, a, a niche crowd you can appeal to, and then if the writing finds an audience, word of mouth can take over from there, like the writer you're talking, about, Steven Siegler, I think you said um, but, uh, yeah, it's hard. And, you know, I might mention that if you ask ten different writers how they got published, you'll get ten different, completely different answers. So, um, you know, I, I certainly, if anyone's listening and thinking about trying to get published, I don't recommend
0: it. Yeah. <laughs> it's,
1: it's a thankless pursuit sometimes.
0: I mean, and also, even even on the music end, I kind of feel that, um, try to, you know, people, oh, you know, that's something that people ask me about, too, about being in a band and, you know, well, you know, what's a good label? You know, well, who should we try to sign to, or can you get us in touch with people at Relapse or whatever? And I'm just like, you know what, man, like, try to do as much as you can on your own because you have the tools available to you to really reach people these days. I mean, every every month it seems like there's some new platform where you can put your music and sell T-shirts and merchandise and things like that. And um, you know, more people pay attention to what's going. Like we were saying earlier, more people pay attention to social media and the internet than looking in zines and seeing ads or, you know, that sort of thing, or, or go into like a you know, a label's website and see what their new releases are. Like I feel like that stuff is becoming less and less relevant. And you know, the only advice I can I can offer to people is to try to try to perfect what you do live and make sure that you can you can play live, play live shows and just try to have your own your own presence somewhere and just manage the whole thing yourself, you know. I mean, within, yeah, within I mean, a matter of days, you can have a web. you know, with all these just third-party applications. You can have a store to sell all your merch. You can have, a you know, some place to host all your audio files. You can have stuff available for either free or paid downloads. And if you wanted to do a vinyl pressing or some sort of physical copy, you can easily do that, too. Yeah, yeah
1: it's, it's strange when you think about it. I remember the day where, where certain labels, uh um, had like a, a brand on them, and so you check out every band that a label would release. And to the extent maybe that's still true uh, with, with a few labels, but that, that seems kind of shattered or, or something that is slowly dissolving into the past because there's all these platforms. A lot of writers do that too. There's a, a wealth of, of online magazines, flash fiction websites, and independent publishers, and also, too, there's, there's certainly plenty of self publishing going on. And you just, you know, I guess if if you're the one creating something, you just—if it's good enough, I guess it'll find an audience. Um, It's—it's still tough, though, you know. I think uh, if—I like to adhere to the notion: if you're creating something that, you know, if you're expecting anything out of it other than just the satisfaction of of doing it, then maybe you're expecting too much. I saw Josh Homme from Queens of the Stone Age said that recently, and it's kind of struck a chord. But if you have any sort of ambition, then you want to—you uh, you do want people to find it. You want some validation. So I'm—I'm I'm, I'm sure part there's a big part of you that would want to just make tunes, music in a, in a jam room or a basement or something. And if no one heard it, you wouldn't give a shit. But I'm sure there's a part of you too that wants to be able to play good shows and, and reach a lot of people. But maybe has something to show for it, whether it's uh, appreciation or a good review or even a nice vinyl record, you know. For, and, and writing books is the same way. You do want something maybe to show for yourself, and uh, it's tough balancing all of that. You know, and, um, I, and I think it's something that anyone grapples with trying to do something creative. Um, you know, maybe, or, or I don't know. I know there's folks out there who are just jam in their garage and they're happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: you know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's you know, but I mean, it has to start with that. It has to start with with you wanting to make yourself happy with things and then if you know if you're passionate about it and just have the belief that good things are going to come out of that if you're just you know true to like what you what you want to do and you satisfy yourself and the people that you're you're involved with in the creation process you know and then you just have to have faith that that's going to if there's any validity in that that that's going to carry you forward to whatever the next step is Yeah,
1: yeah yeah i'm curious to see although uh uh, I'd love to ask you a question, Playing in a, uh, writing fiction is obviously certainly a solitary pursuit, but um, having played in a band myself, and you've certainly done it at a level that I I'd, I'd sort of aspired to, didn't quite reach, but to be able to tour, to go overseas, to put out records, and do it for so long, you know, i I'd venture to say playing in a band with other people and other personalities not only making music, but just logistically being in a band with other people is one of the hardest things I've ever experienced. And I'm curious if if that's something you can vouch for at the level that you've been you've been doing it at too. I mean, do you think it's easy at this point in no. the game,
0: or is it? I mean, um, um, I mean, Tombs has gone through a lot of. I mean, we still we just had more lineup changes. I mean, we've had. I mean, I'm you know I'm the only real original member from the band, so. Um, it is very solitary in some, in some, you know, sense because uh, most of the songwriting and you know that that is my sort of avenue. You know, what I mean that's where that's my responsibility. Um, and it, I mean it's it's a core basically of me and the drummer Andrew Hernandez. And at this stage of the game, we, you know, we've we've learned how to work with each other and and you know, we understand what it's like to be on tour together. But, um, that dynamic is always very challenging, especially, you know, when you're a lot younger too. I mean, when I was like 25 years old and I was touring over in Europe and doing all this stuff, it was, you know, it was, um, you know, the first time, it was almost like, you know, the first time someone's been away from home, you know, there's all this like crazy, you know, sowing of wild oats that go on. And then, I mean, honestly, I've, I've been, you know, pretty much every year since then. <laughs> I've been on tour, you know, traveling, been overseas, you know, I mean, I've done a lot of this sort of stuff, and uh, you, you learn, you sort of learn what to do and what not to do, and, you know, hopefully the people that you're involved with are, are on the same page, and if they're not, either they learn or they just uh, fall apart and leave, you know, that's kind of how it goes.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Sure, of bands that uh, uh, huge rock stars and platinum artists who, who have the luxury of, let's say, playing with a group of individuals. But the rest of the time they're on tour, they're just completely isolated. And, you know, separate tour bus, buses, big rock star type atmosphere. But and the bands, I think that the. the, the at the level that we we've, we've played at and you continue to play at it's to me that's i'm a marvel at bands that are able to maintain a consistent lineup it seems like it's just so hard to do you know um uh, to, to sustain that sort of um, uh, a consistent group of guys or girls and, and, and make a go of it for more than a few years you know so i always respect guys who've been able to just keep making music um been there I realized how difficult it is you know and for, in some respects writing is easy because I'm kind of worry. yeah you, know, you work with an editor and then you can publish you work with a publicist if you're lucky maybe you have some put on the art direction or not you know I had a little bit with last call for the Limit, but not a lot so I don't know writing and we do have it easy in some respects we don't have to worry about you know, you know the, the persistently drunk drummer or the bass player who keeps disappearing or, yeah <laughs> you know shit like that
0: Yeah, I mean, but also, I mean, that sort of X factor is what makes it such a, if if you're able, I feel fortunate to have been able to spend most of my life doing this stuff, you know, I mean, I've never really made a living doing it, Um, you know, there have been varying degrees of uh, financial security that have, uh, you know, or, you know, collapse that have resulted from all this stuff, but I mean... I feel just fortunate that I'm able to live that kind of life you know I mean and and a lot of times I go through periods in my life where I'm like oh man you know I just wasted you know 10-15 years just doing this stuff but then I think about you know how many bands that have been playing that never actually get a chance to make a record or never go on the road or never even play a show and they just rehearse you know and I feel fortunate that I can do it I I feel fortunate that I've had all these experiences out on tour and I've met all these people and Developed all these friendships and seen all these places, you know, and it's, um, it kind of makes all that stuff worth it, really. As hard as, you know, I, you know, a lot of people can go on and on and on about, you know, the, the you know, the, the travels and the, the trials of being on the road and all this other stuff. And it's like, yeah, it, it is, yeah, it's hard, but at the end of the day, you get to play music every night and you get to see, you get paid. Even if you're getting $50 a day, you know, per show or whatever. You're still getting paid. You're a professional. You're still getting paid to go and play your music somewhere and experience that. It's funny. A little anecdote regarding that. Uh, last weekend, um, my landlord failed to tell me that there was going to be uh, you know, an exterminator coming in just to spray down the apartment. So, you know, dude shows up 10 o'clock in the morning and comes in. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, no problem. Man. Just go and, go and do your thing. So he was like, You know, uh, we're having this conversation in a room, which is my quote-unquote studio, which has a lot of recording equipment and Pro Tools set up and random guitars and keyboards and stuff like that in here. And uh, the guy was like, oh, you a professional musician. And I'm just like, well, you know, not really, you know. And he's like, are you getting paid? And I'm like, uh, yeah, you know. And he's like, you're a professional musician. You're just not getting paid what you want to get paid. You're not making the money you want to make. And I'm like, you know what? that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to say that, yeah, I'm a, I'm a professional musician, you know, even though I'm not, you know, getting it over the fence every month. But, you know, it's it's a, a more of a sort of Taoist, you know, career, I guess. You know, <laughs> you have to be like water, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's true, too. In the publishing
1: world, there's a quote by Stephen King I always... Uh I always um, enjoyed, and it, I certainly took it to heart when I, I signed my first book deal. And you know, the publisher paid me in advance, and um, it's pretty standard advance for for you know considering the, the state of the publishing business. But it was exciting. And the Stephen King quote was um, when he, I think he said something to the effect: "I'll paraphrase that if you if, if someone has paid you money for something you've written, and you you took that money and you paid a bill with it." And you're a professional writer. because I remember after I got the advance, I remember paying my cell phone bill and yep. I think like the electric a utility or two at the house. My, my fiance and I were, were renting at the time, and I yeah, it was so satisfying. That quote kept knocking around in my head, so I think that exterminator's onto something, man. I mean, he should probably be charging for his his Zen wisdom. He's giving out to his customers. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, he he apparently, he told me he was a percussionist in some band, like, out in Jersey, like, a you know, years and years ago, and that they used to cover uh, Roundabout by Yes, and he was like, yeah, man, there was, like, 13 changes in that song, and I was like, yeah, you, you know, there you go, man, you know, too bad you should have stuck it out, you know, you could have been a pro, you know, you could have made, like, 75 bucks or whatever, you know, but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the thing, man, it's like, you can, there's definitely something sweet, About that weekly paycheck, you know? But there's also something sweet about being creative and actually being enabled to do that, even if it's a meager financial offering that you get for it. At least, like, that whatever money you make on the road or selling shirts or doing your thing enabled you to continue to move on. That's really the best you can ask for, you know? And that's kind of how I look at this whole thing, you know? It's like, yeah... You know, I'm not. I'm not rich. I'm not even really making. A, I'm not making a living doing it. But it's. I, we're always just getting enough to keep our practice space paid for. To you know, keep gas in the van. To keep everyone you know more or less solvent while we're away. You know, and that's like. The, you know, all I can ask for. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, uh,
1: I have the same attitude about riding, but it's just. Uh it's it's hard sometimes too, especially if you want to do it full time as a career. You know, I start a work a day job, and uh, certainly there there's ways you can make money, and you just uh, without pushing it and being an obnoxious self promoter. But, but you know, you can always hope that maybe Hollywood will take an interest in your book, or or um, maybe a book you write will catch fire and you'll have a bestseller on your hands. Because that has a way of perpetuating itself. But uh, for me, it's. Uh, I think a lot of writers, they unless you're doing really avant-garde stuff that's going to have a limited audience, part of you, at least in my case, I do I do want to write stuff that's creatively satisfying in you know, the crime mystery uh, uh, genre, but I do hope I would like to reach as wide an audience as I can. And, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a little ambitious, but it can really chew you up and spit you out. If you well on that stuff. For me, it's always a balancing act. I'm always kind of walking especially hoping, wondering where my next book's going to be published in in the future. Um, There's a lot of highs and lows when you get into this sort of thing. And by thing, I mean in general making music, trying to play in a band with other personalities, put out records on a label and tour, or in my case, you know, hopefully publish at at a professional level, at a high level. Yeah, it's, it's tough. It can really eat at you if you let it get to you, you
0: know? So your, the other novels you have, are they all, you know, in the same genre as uh, Last Call for the Living?
1: Um, yeah, well, I'd say the follow-up novel that's that um, my agent and I are hoping to find a home for, um, hopefully sooner rather than later, uh, it's, it's set in the South, and it's sort of a, another, a, another rural um, noir thriller to degree I'm, I'm really proud of the book and really excited i think it's light years ahead of, of last call for the living um and uh, uh but again yeah it's 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 sort of a mix of certain my influences whether the regional writers um and then and, and crime writers so it does reflect those influences for sure um and then the book i'm working on now is, is certainly in that vein as well um uh, you know, so I guess I, I do like writing books set in the rural south, let's put it that way. Like it's more interesting to me than than the places covered with pavement. I, I like the place that's covered with cutsil, I
0: guess. <laughs> the um so like what other writers have you been, you know, into, you know, like that you might have like taken inspiration from? Um well you can I think a few in, in your
1: reaction to The Last Call for the Living, which certainly make, you know, makes me smile, James Elroy and, and Corb McCarthy. Um, I certainly have a deep love for, for regional fiction, southern writers. Flannery O'Connor is probably my all-time favorite writer. Uh, a writer from Mississippi named Larry Brown, um, uh, who, who, who died uh, back in 2005. He was a firefighter before he became a writer. Um, another writer named Harry Cruz.
0: Oh yeah, I love Harry Cruz. Yeah, oh, yeah.
1: Um, he's he, O'Connor, Larry Brown, Harry Cruz, um, certainly Court McCarthy, and then a lot, quite a few other writers who are from the South. But the, the, those those guys and gals are my Mount Rushmore writers, without a doubt. Um, and although I seem to be writing books that center around around a crime, um, I. I I'm certainly, too, aspiring to write books that I I hope have a a deep sense of place, you know, set in the South. Um, uh, You know, being raised here, it's all I know, and uh, to me, it's just something that's of interest to me, is to writing books set in the deep South and in rural areas. But um, I've read a lot of crime writers and mystery writers and certainly admire a lot, everyone from Joseph Lambaugh to Michael Connelly, you know, both big bestsellers. To you know, more obscure writers. You, you mentioned Jim Thompson to yep. uh, everyone from him to uh, James Crumley to uh, you know James Lee Burke and uh, a lot of writers in between. You know, I certainly try to read a, a wide variety of genres of writers. and writers. Yeah, I don't, you aren't going to catch me reading many romance and, uh, novels. I'm not a huge science fiction fan. My father was a horror writer, and I did grow up basically reading a lot of horror novels, but. I don't read a lot of horror anymore, but I still try and read as varied writers as I can. It certainly makes you a better writer, I
0: think, in the long run. Well, that's awesome, man. So, um, actually, you know what would be really cool is if you send over like a list, like sort of a writing, you know, list of, I mean, I'm sorry, a reading list of like some of these guys, you know, just so I can put it it on the blog portion of the, uh, you know, the entry for this.
1: Yeah, I'd love to, man. I can send you like a top ten yep. uh, or something like that. So I'm a sucker for
0: top ten lists. So. Yeah, I love that kind of stuff too, man. But uh, but anyway, thanks for um, you know, thanks for for spending the time, man. I appreciate it. And uh, you know, we've been going for a while, so I think we're gonna we're gonna call it here. And uh, once again, yeah, yeah. is there uh, is there any any like website or Twitter handle that people can follow you at?
1: Oh yeah, man. I uh, despite my ramblings. Uh, out all my, my social media fatigue so to speak. Uh, I'm at my, my Twitter handle is PJ Ferris, Peter Ferris on Facebook, peterfarris.com. You can buy my book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. Indie Book Civilian. Indie bookstore. certainly I'm a big fan of any independent bookstore. You know uh, it's available as an ebook, you know, so it's it's out there if you're curious and, and, and want to get a go check it out.
0: Awesome. Um, so yeah, man. Once again, thanks uh, for everyone for listening. And uh, you know, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's MikeHillHQ.com.